Hey, Mark! Yes. Happy birthday. You already gave me a Howard the Duck framed picture. What is going to happen this year? Okay, that was for your birthday. But this is our birthday. It's episode 52 of Heart of Podness. Oh my god, it is? It is! Guess who doesn't pay attention? We've come so far. Wow. It's been incredible. I'm thinking of some great moments in our show's history. Um, well, speaking of, I actually wanted to kind of uh, test you on some of those. Oh god, this is gonna go disastrously. So, over the last week and a half, I have listened to an average of three episodes of our show a day. Why are you doing this it's to yourself? It's driving me insane. I can't imagine. Today, I took a break and I listened to an episode of a different podcast, and I was like, wow, other voices. To be clear, y'all should keep listening to this show. I think it's a lot of fun. I think each individual episode that I listened to was fun, but I listened to a lot. Specifically, I listened to 33 episodes of this show, so I didn't get through all of them. Very close. A lot. Yeah, over half. And so I thought, in honor of our birthday, we could do a little celebratory retrospective. Because, you know, one of the great strengths of Heart of Podness has been the fact that we really turned it into a social media sensation. Sure. We've been the talk of the town, if by the town you mean the internet, where everybody is really into this show. We are ones, if not tens of tweets. The number one podcast <laughs> discussed on the Heart of Podness Twitter feed. <laughs> So I think that's something that ought to be celebrated. And I think the biggest part of our success in terms of social media genius has been our successful branding through brilliant hashtags. Oh, God. And so what I thought we could do in order to celebrate our one-year anniversary and to take a look back at the history of this show is that I would uh, walk us through some of the greatest hashtags in our past, and we'll see how well you're able to explain where they come from and what they mean. Again, this is going to end disastrously. As in all things that I do, like my classroom, I don't know is not an acceptable answer. You have to come up with an idea. Oh boy. Oh god. We're going to start off with a softball. I just want to know where it comes from and what it means. Hashtag, it's the sound, it's the feeling. Those are the fake lyrics that you assumed were in the song, Grease. Okay, somewhere those came into my head. Nope, they don't exist. I we Googled it. I can't made those up. We Googled it, Will. I know. <laughs> this is my Mandela effect. <laughs> this is my Berenstain Bears. Somewhere out in the multiverse, someone said, Grease, it's the sound, it's the feeling. And I know you're going to say, it was me, because it was in this universe, but in another universe, they say it in the movie. If you say so. Hashtag, nice skin. Obviously, this is when Ron says Hermione has nice skin, too, after Harry says it first. In the movie. Oh, Harry Potter and the um, Half-Blood Prince. There you go. See, you're doing great. Yeah, I told you you could do this. Hashtag, be wild. Be wild body glitter. Guys, get ready. It's almost Christmas time. Woo! We strongly discussed doing Christmas Kiss again this year. We're not going to, but we are going to have Fiona back to do another uh, bad Christmas movie. Of course. But we're not bringing back our favorite Be Wild Body Glitter. We're we'll going to be wa- wearing it during <laughs> the episode. <laughs> we will also probably watch it again this year. And as promised on that Christmas Kiss episode, if you order Be Wild Body Glitter, it'll be delivered to you in a box smaller than a mini fridge. <laughs> All right, next up. Hashtag no kleb. <laughs> this was one of them? Yeah. <laughs> this did not ex- like survive that episode. Um, it's been blazing a pathway through the internet. Yeah, but we never it has its own it in our list. No Kleb? Yeah, hashtag no Kleb. How is it spelled? Uh, N-O-K-L-E-B. 
I have no idea. That's not an acceptable answer. You have to come up with something, <laughs> and you have to tie it to one of our movies. I'm thinking. I mean, I'm assuming it was a typo or it is not misspoken. A typo. It is not misspoken. Kleb? Kleb. Is it from B-Movie? The listeners are screaming at you right now. Guys, I don't listen to this podcast. You need an answer. Um, B-Movie, and it's short for Klebsmer. <laughs> because all the bees are Jewish? Is that your answer? <laughs> I, literally, that's the only thing that came into my head. Colonel Kleb, who is the evil lady from from Russia with Love? Oh my god. And we took a firm anti-Kleb stance in that episode because we said, you know what? She is an agent of Spectre. Before that, she's an agent of the Soviet government. And we didn't approve of either of those things. And we wanted to share with our listeners that we were not on the side of Kleb. Hashtag no Kleb. If you were to ask me if we had done From Russia with Love... Five minutes ago, I would have said no. But it was great. It was our Bond episode. We do the Bond (laughs) thing every episode. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that, too. All right, next up. Hashtag colorblind donkeys. I mean, Shrek. Donkey is colorblind. Right. We asked people to let us know if donkeys actually are colorblind and to tweet at us with that information. They did not. But I like to think that that was a forerunner of the number one fact-based hashtag in the universe, which is... B-facts. Hashtag B-facts. Which comes from... Oh, God, which one was it? Was it, um, While You Were Sleeping? <sighs> Comes from the Bee Movie. Oh. Starring Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> As a bee. And Chris Barry B. Benson. That opens with a incorrect fact about bees. Yeah, which was the source of the Bee Movie meme. It all got started with an earnest meme about how bees fly in spite of physics. Yep. Which, of course, is not true. Yeah. All right. Hashtag poop talk. Oh, <laughs> boy um all of these are references to the movies that they come from i didn't do any of our like weird conversation ones okay was it early? so for example was this one early uh it's episode 27 oh um yeah for example i didn't do ones like hashtag trope trap or hashtag you been burnt which are not references to movies i don't remember either of those we're looking for hashtag poop talk oh is it mr mom because there's babies it is not from Mr. Mom, although that's a nice guess. Mr. Mom was more a source of movie ideas oh, right. than hashtags. I did come up with a guess and an answer, though, so you have to tell me now. All right. Hashtag poop talk is a reference to Raiders of the Lost Ark, where we discussed the fact that the actor who played Sala yep. pooped his pants while in costumes standing up. Yep. That is an actor that I chose as the person I would date in that episode <laughs> and cited that as part of the <laughs> evidence. All right, um, we got two more. All right. Okay. This one is hashtag Lil Rusty. Oh, this one's familiar. This has to do with your date from that episode. Oh, my God. I'm totally blanking. I couldn't name a single movie we've covered. You got to pick one. You I need a, a hint. Case. Give me a hint. Um, We covered it this summer. Okay. Summer. It was hot weather-wise. What was it? Lil Rusty? Hashtag Lil Rusty. L-I-L-R-U-S-T-Y. Is that from like... This is one of our classic hashtags reflecting the way people speak, like hashtag Yubin Burnt and hashtag P-Trappin. Did I pick the movie? We agreed on this one. Okay. Is it from... You were particularly inspired to do it, though. Okay. Was it from, like, Legally Blonde? It is not from Legally Blonde, which I did not get to on my re-listen, so I don't know if there are any hashtags in there. I couldn't remember if, like, Paulette Dog was named Rusty. That was my reasoning. Yeah. No, this is a reference to Ocean's Eleven. Oh, right. Is their character... One of them's named Rusty, right? Brad Pitt. Right. 
He actually had two hashtags. The other one was hashtag Frosto's tips because of his frosted tips. I probably would have gotten that one more easily. All right. And lastly, we've got hashtag Count Macho. We didn't do anything Sesame Street. Correct. So it's not the Count. Count Macho. Is it Bridget Jones Diary? Because that's set in Britain where they have counts. No, actually, the main hashtag from Bridget Jones Diary was hashtag titspervert. <laughs> oh, God. Which is what she thinks of as the name of Mr. Fitzherbert, who she works with. That's right. No, Count Macho was a former pupil of the martial arts master, Master Shaj. But he, instead of using his training for good, he used it to bully and intimidate people. And one day, he was throwing knives at people being mean. He actually stabbed a guy in a diner. And this was witnessed by somebody who then oh, joined the tutelage of Master Shaj. And that actually is how Howard the Duck... Learned quack foo. Became the master of quack foo. God damn it. Why didn't I think that would be the last one? I really don't know. I'm dumb. <sighs> Guys, it's been almost a year since we've watched that movie, and I still have such a fiery, hot passion of hate. You know, in that episode, I suggested that we watch it every year and bring in our new insights. No. So next week? Nope. I feel like we made nah. a commitment to the people. Nope. We made a promise. Nah. Our word is our bond. Nope. Our word is all our listeners have. They can't see us. Nope. I would I never like, watch that goddamn movie I feel movie like you don't care again. about our reputation. I don't. If it, it means I have to watch Howard the Duck again. We should just buy the Blu-ray. Will. Or the Laserdisc. That would be the biggest waste of money because I would immediately set it on fire. But then it would have provided us with warmth at least. It would be on fire. I'm trying to bring in some positive attitudes here and I feel like I'm getting shut down by you. Well, let's talk about while you're sleeping because I'll be positive about that one. Back to episode number one. Yeah. That was a great movie. Uh, one year ago. Speaking about uh about the past. Yes. Maybe we should move into our present. Yep. Welcome to Heart of Podness. I'm Mark and I'm Gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, as you know, is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or... Even likable? You know what? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and... Hang on. I, uh... I just got a voicemail while we were doing the dumb game. I mean, the amazing game. The game was awesome. I have <laughs> so no regrets fun. about it. It was my favorite thing. I had a lot of fun putting that together today while I was at work. It was excellent. Talk about reputation. Will's on his phone in the middle of an episode. Well, that's where the voicemail goes, my dude. That, yeah. I'm not checking my voicemails. You know I get five a day. I have to check. I'm our contact guy. It's true. So It's on, on the official Heart of Podness number. Yeah, so I'm just going to play this. I assume it's for both of us because it went to that address. Right. Hi, Mark, Will. I'm checking in from Square Apron. This is Tony A. Anthony, Vice President of Marketing for General Interest Broadcasting and Television and Film. Uh, gotta say, first off, love the show. Can't say I agree with some of the scores you're giving out. I think you're being a little harsh on some of these romances, but maybe I'm a dreamer. That said, love the show. Gotta say, it's just not working out, and uh, the content is not a problem. Uh, well, actually, the content is a problem insofar as it fails to explain the name of the show. A CEO asked me yesterday about what the name meant, and I could not tell her. Well, unfortunately, the ambiguity of the name is apparently becoming a problem for Square Apron, and therefore, for yours truly, we got hot surgeons who are confused, we got some kind of pod people who are calling us, the estate of Joseph Conrad is suing us instead of you for some reason. 
boss was getting pretty red in the cheeks, said figuring out who we were marketing for was my job. She could grab 10 guys off the street and eight of them would take over as vice president of marketing and advertising for general interest podcasting and television and film. Do it just as well. I'm on thin ice, out on a limb. Point is, it has become clear we can no longer endorse or support this podcast in any way, shape, or form. We are committed to delicious websites, best of the best, king of the hill, top of the heap. Again, love the show. Gotta say, good as ever, but... That said, we're pulling the plug. Best wishes. Wait. Did we just get cancelled? Obviously, we've only ever talked about one sponsor, so I'm guessing... We are a Square Apron produced show. We were a Square Apron produced show. Oh, God. What now do we do? Now we're not a show at all. We were celebrating our one-year birthday, but... Is this the end? I guess. The good die young. You know, Kalho Naho warned us that tomorrow might not ever come, but I didn't think tomorrow would come so soon. Or wouldn't come. I guess I didn't think tomorrow wouldn't come so soon. I don't know. Can I carry on? I mean, I guess we've already started recording, so we might as well finish this episode, but I guess this is it, the final episode of Heart of Podness. Oh, boy. And it what is a kind sad of day. It is, it is a sad day, but it's also kind of fitting that we're ending where we began. Uh, we've mentioned this on the show before, but before we ever put out episode one on While You Were Sleeping, we recorded a pilot just to get our legs under our feet about Vincent Minnelli's 1944 Amazing musical, classic film. Family musical, all-season wonder, Meet Me in St. Louis. And for our one-year anniversary, we were going to do that again. So I guess that's a good way for us to go out. Yeah, we already watched the movie for a second time. We might as well... Uh... Get in the swing of things and talk about this movie. All right, we're going to have to do our best to keep our spirits up. Just picture Judy Garland's lovely face and beautiful singing voice, yeah, and yourself, the world will seem much happier. Have yourself a merry little podcast. This will be our last. I hated that so much, Will. <laughs> I will never <laughs> apologize. All right, so we're watching Meet Me in St. Louis this week. Right. You saw this movie the, for the first time for the show. Correct. Great Film. It's such a good movie. I don't know why it... I guess there's not that many films that really carried on from, like, golden age musicals that people still talk about. It's basically Singing in the Rain. For the most part, For yeah. the mar- most part, but this one is so good. Yeah, and it's worth noting that it was a huge hit. Right. It was Vincent Minnelli's first time shooting in Technicolor, so he was really excited and, like, wanted to do all of the colors all over the place. Oh, boy, can you tell. Boy, can you tell, which is cool, too. I mean, he had background in set design. So he was bringing that expertise right. with him. Real quick, why are there so many stripes? Is so, that because of color? I can't say for sure why everyone is wearing stripes always. I can say that Minnelli and the costume designer and the set dresser and all those guys got their models from the 1904 Sears catalog. Oh. So they went to the sort of quintessential model of American life in the early 20th century and used that to plan everything else out from. That's really smart. Isn't it cool? That's so cool. Yeah. And at the time that this is made, so the movie's set in 1903, 1904. It is made in 1943, comes out in 44. Right. So these are people looking back 40 years and really reminiscing about what to them would feel like a more peaceful, nostalgic time. This is in America in the middle of World War II. Right. Looking to a time when things felt really optimistic. Before even World War One had happened. Right. And so, time-wise, if 40 years ago puts us in the 70s. Right. So, it would be like if we made a That 70s Show movie. Except that we're not super nostalgic about the 70s because we don't feel happy, fond memories about Watergate and the oil shock. That's true. 
I assume that there must have been something bad happening in 1904, because there's always something bad happening. Well, one thing bad that was going on was the Russo-Japanese War. Oh, true. Which proved a real challenge to the real-life World's Fair in St. Louis. It was the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. So a lot of the World's Fairs at the time would have a theme around some big anniversary. Right. Like, the Chicago one was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage. San Francisco is completing the Panama Canal, I think. Right. And the St. Louis one was the centennial of the Louisiana Purchase. Right. And so a lot of the exhibits were tied to that. That's why it was centered in St. Louis, the gateway to the West. But one of the other things that was hosted there as part of it was... The 1904 Olympics. Oh. Which were held not in like a one-week period the way they are now. Yeah. They were held with events over the course of the whole year. But the problem is you got to think this is a period before air travel. It's the first Olympiad held outside Europe. And it's in the middle of the United States. So very few people from outside North America came. Uh, fair. And the Olympics are also famous for being one of the worst run Olympics in history. Honestly, unsurprising. Yeah, but like there are a lot of funny pieces that came out of it. The best known one of all is the marathon, which is famous because the dude who won it, this is like the worst group of marathoners ever. It's just like a bunch of stragglers. One of the dudes who had signed up from Cuba showed up at the last minute and he was still in his street clothes. So he had to cut off the legs of his pants using scissors so he could just run around like that. And he probably would have placed really highly, except he stopped on an orchard on the way. Like, while he was running, he saw an orchard and he stopped over to snack on some apples, but they were rotten, so he got sick. What the f*** is happening at this Olympics? He finished in fourth in the marathon. <laughs> you joke? What? The dude who came in first gave up partway through the race, and then a car with some of his friends picked him up. And then they were driving along the length. And then the car broke down around the 19th mile. So then he ran the rest of the way. And when and he got no to the one end, knew? They were like, oh, you're the winner. They figured it out. They crowned a different winner. The different winner was a guy named Thomas Hicks. He made it through because nobody like trained properly for marathons at the time. He made it through because his trainers who were running along with him kept giving him doses of strychnine sulfate mixed with brandy. What? Yeah. So they would give him that to like energize him a little bit yeah. and keep him going. And he did make it to the finish line, but he had to be supported by his trainers across the finish line. Oh my god. This is... How is any of this legal? Yeah. Um, similarly, this is the first Olympic where black Africans competed. Okay. And they were two guys, uh, Swana tribesmen, who were recruited into it because they didn't have enough people. So they went over. One of the things they had at the World's Fair was like displays of different cultures from around the world. So they grabbed these South African tribesmen and were like, yo, you guys should run in the marathon. And one of them was expected to do really well, except he got chased by a couple of dogs and had to run off the track for a while. So the Olympiad part of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition did not go great. No, that's horrifying. Yeah, it was very poorly run. Speaking of the demonstration stuff, there was also a section of it that was pitched battles, like recreating the Boer War which had, like, just been going on. <laughs> Gotta give it some time before you do war reenactments. Yeah. That sounds horrible. Like, what? Is this the same exposition where um the Africans were put in, like, a zoo with animals? Um, There's some of that going on here, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Actually, Geronimo himself was at this exposition as part of an exhibit. That's horrible. Yeah. God, everything sucks. On the other hand, this movie rules. Yeah, that uh, true. This movie's great. Yeah, and people realized that at the time it was hugely popular. Yeah. It was the most successful MGM movie at the time, except for Gone with the Wind. That is a 
high bar. Yeah. Wow. So it did really, really well. By the way, to put that in context, that means it made $5 million in initial release. But inflation exists, guys. Right. Inflation exists. And uh, it was a huge hit, actually, to the point that they talked about doing a sequel. It never got off the ground. Like, they never even wrote a script. But they made noise about making Meet Me in Manhattan, a sequel that would have ignored the ending of this one and had them be in New York. Oh, my God. Which, the reason for that is that this movie is based on a novel, which is based on a series of New Yorker articles. Not articles, stories. Yeah. By Sally Benson. They were called 5135 Kensington, before the book was then called Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And as published in the New Yorker, there was one for each month of the year. So just like the movie charting a year in the life of the people at 5135 Kensington Avenue, a real residential address, but... I was looking at it on Google Maps today, and now it's there's no house on that property. Oh, that's just a bummer. Grass, which is a bummer. But in real life, her family did move to New York and didn't then go to the World's Fair in St. Louis. And so they were talking about continuing to adapt stuff from her life by doing Meet Me in Manhattan. But like I said, they never did. Well, you know, only a few decades later, the Muppets came and took Manhattan. They did. They took it hard. And they put on Manhattan Melodies. So do we need any more Manhattan content? Which is a better musical, Manhattan Melodies or Twinkle Town? Oh, God. Probably Manhattan Melodies. Probably, but at least Twinkle Town doesn't involve tricking someone into marriage. Yeah, true. A more ethical musical. For sure. It's a bummer that they didn't get to make it to the fair. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. It's like they say when they hear that they're going to be moving. It's like finally the most exciting thing. The world is turning its eyes to the town that they're from and they're about to be leaving. Yeah. That's really sad. And that's one of the things I like is that. So Judy Garland, we haven't mentioned her, is the star of this movie. Amazing. Esther Smith. Phenomenal. She's terrific. She really struggled at first with getting involved in the movie. She hadn't wanted to do another role as a teenager. By this point, she's 21. She's already been divorced once. And she felt like playing a teenager would be going backwards. Which, at the time, fair. Yeah. But she was convinced by Arthur Freed, who was in charge of the musicals department at MGM, that she should do this project. And she went along with it, but she was still kind of grumpy about it at first and was kind of going through the motions. And Freed and Vincent Minnelli had to really work with her to get her to put in the work. To commit. To commit to the role. And one of the things that Vincent Minnelli said that I really liked was that each of Esther's crises, and she has a lot of crises, and a lot of them are kind of juvenile. Right. But he said each of Esther's crises has to be treated like the 1929 crash. <laughs> I like that Like, line. each of them has to be the most important thing that happens. And it's that sincerity that sells this movie. This yeah. movie just wears its heart on its sleeves, and its sleeves are striped because it's 1903, and it's a ton of fun. It is. We watched an introduction that came with the DVD that Will got with Liza Minnelli introducing the movie, and she talks about how Vincent Minnelli had to, you know, work with Judy Garland to convince her to do all this and was really, like, working closely with her. And Liza Minnelli says, that Judy told her that's when she fell in love. Yeah. And you can just feel how much Liza Minnelli loves her parents in this clip and how much they seem to actually really love each other. And it was just a very heartwarming moment to watch. Yeah, it was nice. And the movie was well-received. It got four Oscar nominations. It was nominated for adapted screenplay, color cinematography, because at the time those were split into color and black and white, original score, and original song for... The trolley song. <laughs> clang, clang, clang. I mean, literally, that's the inspiration for the song. It is. So, <laughs> clang, clang, clang with the jolly old trolley. The composer, Hugh Martin, was told that Arthur Freed wanted a song about the trolley. And he was like, could we just write a song that they sing on a trolley? Like, that seems really on the nose. No. And Arthur Freed was like, no, you must write a song about the trolley. And the Hugh Martin's like, fine. And then he and his songwriting partner 
were doing some research. They were at the library in Beverly Hills and they found an archival photo that was captioned, clang, clang, what the jolly old trolley. Yeah, and they used to release like LPs before the movies would come out. Oh yes, I know where you're going with this. And this song was a hit before the movie came out. People loved the trolley song. Yeah, so then when they were releasing the movie, it was like on the posters, like the movie with the trolley song. Get pumped, people. Yeah, guys, people love trolleys. The trolley song is... Very well sung by Judy Garland. It is very well performed by Judy Garland, too. It is not the best song in this movie. No, by no means, because Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, performed by Judy Garland, is in this movie. Right. So, stiff competition, weird song, she does very well singing it. But, okay, so her first lines in the song are, With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high upon my head, she is not wearing a high starch collar, and she's like the only one with her hair down. Which, to be fair, is anachronistic. Adult women at the time would have had their hair piled high. Oh, her outfits are pretty dang scandalous. She wasn't even wearing a hat in that scene. Well, yeah, I mean, she's the town tart. (laughs) Apparently, the way they dressed her. Yeah. Her hair was down for a lot of the movie. It was, but I mean, she's got great hair, so what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, she wasn't, I guess it's like weird because she's still kind of a kid. She's still in high school. Yeah, I think the character is like 16. Yeah, 17. Because they're just shy of being adults. So I know Rose is a year older and Rose is getting ready to graduate. Right. And Esther's a year younger. Yeah, because when they get engaged. Right. Spoiler. What? <laughs> um. Last things to mention. Of course, there is another Oscar that this movie wins. Well, not the movie, but the second build actor in this movie is Margaret O'Brien, who plays Tootie. Oh my god, I love her so much. Terrific performance. She was seven years old when she filmed this role. She had started acting in movies when she was four. And already by this point, she was like a sensation for being really, really good. This movie is Judy Garland... In Meet Me in St. Louis with Margaret O'Brien. And then everyone else. Including Mary Astor, who is a very well-established actress at this point. Right. Who Um, is third. Yeah, so Margaret O'Brien, she got a special Academy Juvenile Award, which was recognizing, like, the best child performance of the year. That's a fun award. Yeah, that was an award. It was given out sporadically across a 26-year period. Judy Garland herself had actually won it. It wasn't given out every year in that 26-year period. So Margaret O'Brien was one of 12 people to ever get that Oscar. That's cute. I kind of, I, I don't think that's like, I think that's cute to give out that award. No, I like it. I would bring it back. Yeah. Other winners include Shirley Temple and Mickey Rooney. And the last one to win it was Haley Mills in 1960 for Pollyanna. That's a strong list. Yeah. Uh, Judy Garland's so good in this movie. She's great. And she actually kind of had her perception of her career turned around a little bit by this movie. Mm-hmm. She hadn't wanted to be in it. By the time it premiered, for starters, by the time it premiered, she was engaged to its director, Vincent Minnelli. Right. It was at the premiere in New York when they revealed their engagement. But also, her makeup artist on this movie was really significant. Her name was Dorothy Pondell. And she did a bunch of work sort of shifting Judy Garland's appearance. She reshaped her hairline, her eyebrows, and her lip line, removed her nose discs and her teeth caps. And so Judy Garland often said that this was the movie where she felt the prettiest. Yeah. And insisted that Dorothy Pondell do all her makeup on all the movies she ever did for MGM again. Wow. I can't believe how much people told her she was ugly. Yeah. It's insane to me. She's so beautiful. She sings beautifully. And she's so thin in this. And everyone her whole career told her she was fat and ugly and was like a mediocre talent. Yeah. I was watching an interview with Margaret O'Brien where she was talking about having heard one time about some of the singers and dancers sitting around at one point and Judy sat with them and... 
she was just kind of listening for a while. They were talking about how great Margaret O'Brien was. And then Judy said, like, she's such a young kid. This is horrible for her. Like, I feel so bad for her. And Margaret O'Brien was saying, like, look, I was coming up 10, 15 years later. There were a lot more protections in place. There were a lot more labor laws that were keeping me all right. Like, there was always a teacher with me. They weren't making me, like, take pills and stuff like that. But it is kind of sad to think about all that. And so, like, Judy Garland has this awesome performance in here. But even there, she was thinking a little bit watching Margaret O'Brien about that child yeah. acting. Margaret O'Brien even mentions that she didn't get pills pushed on her. Right. Which was something they were doing to, like, a seven-year-old Judy Garland. Yeah, it's crazy. Margaret O'Brien did face her own danger in this movie, though, which is that originally her mom had demanded more money yeah. for the role. And so then the producers were like, fine, we won't use you. And they cast the daughter of one of the lighting operators. And then Margaret O'Brien came back and was like, no, we're going to do the movie. And then the lighting operator intentionally dropped a spotlight that almost hit her. Oh my God. As like revenge. And it missed. So Margaret O'Brien was fine and was great in the movie. Yeah. The lighting operator was obviously fired. You should have been arrested. Oh my God. Yeah, it's she wild. She's seven. It's wild stuff. Uh, she's so good too. I yeah, love Tootie. Tootie is hardcore in this Tootie movie. Tootie is terrifying. <laughs> she, she scares me. At one point, her brother describes her as a hoodlum and everyone kind of laughs it off. And it's like, no, Really? She is she is a scary. She is a juvenile delinquent. She tries to at one point drive a trolley off the tracks as a joke. She believes that she is committing murder. Yeah, she is convinced that people will die and it will be hilarious. Yeah, she's a menace. She's going to end up in jail someday. Yeah, Tootie is uh Tootie is done for. I don't have a lot of hopes for Tootie. Yeah, no. Uh but I do have hopes for the uh the romance in this movie. I do. Should we start looking Let's do it for the last time. The last, the last episode. Time. I forgot already. Yeah. I was trying to live we in my happy a good little time, bubble. But uh, I think we should honor the significance of this moment. So every episode for the last 51 weeks, we have broken down the romance of a movie into the five points that best exemplify it. And this movie has a four-act structure broken up into the seasons of a year. It goes summer, autumn, winter, spring. But... Even though it's very much a four-part movie, we're still going to break it up into five points. And we're going to start, number one, watching from afar. How can I ignore the boy next door? I love him more than I can say. I mean, not that far. No, from next door, you might say. She lives at 5135 Kensington. And he lives at 5133. Yeah, so our main character is Judy Garland, who plays Esther Smith. The middle child of a large family. She's the third of five, yeah. Yeah. And she is, we learn, totally smitten with John Truitt. Who who she's never talked to. He's recently moved in next door. We find this out when her sister Rose is coming home. And Rose comes in and is immediately like, Esther, oh my gosh, John Truitt's standing outside on the lawn. He's literally just standing there wiping his pipe, like looking in the distance. He's not sitting, reading, or doing anything. He's just wiping a pipe. Well, John is kind of a loser. He is. His one cool thing is that he plays basketball and is probably kind of good. And football. And football. He's sporty. He's a sporty girl. But he's pretty much a loser. Yeah. I mean, he's not even really a loser. He's just so lukewarm. Yeah. So 
Rose grabs Esther and is like, we have to go outside. Like, we got to go watch him. And Esther's like, well, no, we got to be cool about it. Like, we're just going to go stand on our porch. And Rose is like, yeah, nothing abnormal about us going and standing on our porch. That's perfectly fine. It's our own porch. There's no crime there. And so they do it in the most teenager, like, walking stiffly, trying not to attract attention. And they walk out and just kind of sit looking over their shoulders at him. Yeah. This is when I first realized how much everyone loves stripes. I think this moment is when it hit me. Yeah, it's very clear. So... He goes inside right as they go on the porch. And they complain about how rude that is. Yeah, they complain. He hasn't looked at them or made eye contact. And they're like, what is going on? What is this dude's problem? We have not spoken to him once, and he's being so rude by not gazing upon our beauty. Rose does tell Esther, you can't expect him to fling himself at you. Which is clearly what Esther expects. Yeah, that's exactly what she wants. I like Rose's perspective as, like, the wise older one when she's, like, a year older. Yeah. But she has her own flirtationship going on with uh, Warren Sheffield. She's bouncing two men in this movie. Yeah. One lasts for a whole 30 seconds on screen. Well, I mean, also, that's when she's kind of on the outs with Warren. Right. So Warren Sheffield is at Yale. Which in this movie seems to be located in New York City. Yes, Warren Sheffield attends Yale, but he and Rose have been, like, flirting a bit, and one of the big news things that's happening today is that Warren's going to be calling her long distance from New York City. That's a lot of money, That's people. a lot of money in 1903. Yeah. And so they're like, the it's only reason- that, It's amazing they have a phone in their house. So they're like, the only reason you would pay for that would be to ask someone to marry you. And I love their maid Katie is like, personally, I wouldn't marry anybody who proposed to me on an invention. <laughs> I love Katie so much. Katie's great. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rose is being super wise, and she's like, Esther, like, when you get to my age, you'll find there are more important things than boys. Right. And so... uh, Which she clearly is still very invested in this Oh, right. She's really upset when Warren calls and doesn't propose to her. And he calls, and he's like, how's the weather in St. Louis? Well, I got nothing else to talk about. Yeah, it's a weird moment. This is actually Lucille Bremer's first feature-length movie. Really? Yeah, I think she's awesome in it. She's great. She does tell Esther, like, oh, we could always just go introduce ourselves. It's a neighborly thing to do. And Esther's like, uh, no. I want to, I want to, like, have this amazing meet-cute. It has to be special. Must seem spontaneous, even though I will plan every last detail of it. Yeah, so she goes inside and she sings, how can I adore the boy next door? One thing I noticed, Esther knows what she wants and she gets it in this movie. This is true. She's intense, though. She is intense. I love it. She knows what she wants and she goes for it. Oh boy. Boy does she. Yeah, I mean, love her. Yeah, she's so good in this movie. So this, our point one is just watching from afar. Yeah. But we should probably move on then to point two, which is still in this summer Oh, I will say with The Boy Next Door, this is a song that mostly takes place with Judy Garland just sitting in a window and it's like a static shot of Judy Garland for over a minute and it's still so compelling. Yeah, and there are a lot of those shots in the movie where it's Judy Garland in frames of doors or windows or things like that. And I feel like in a lot of other movies, they wouldn't have have someone just sitting for that long while singing there'd be some more dancing or movement or something but judy garland can hold it because there's a lot of acting there's a lot of performance just in her being there and singing right we don't need to add more to it yeah in her voice especially but also in her face too yeah it's one of the real strengths of her performance in this movie right um so that takes us then to point number two Still in the summer, their brother Lon... Alonzo. Right, short for Alonzo, which is also their dad's name. Yeah. So Lon is having a going away party before he goes off to Princeton, which is also located in New York City. Yeah, they're in the same city. Um, I can't with 
the line where they're like, only rich people in New York live in houses. We're going to live in this rundown tenement. This is a family that lives in this massive mansion, has beautiful decoration, is sending their son to Princeton. And when they're told they're they've moving, got Katie working for them Katie, every day. When they're told they're moving to New York, they act like they're moving, like they're going to become these poor peasants living in a one bedroom apartment, working in a factory all day. Well, to be fair, on the one hand, it's Katie who tells them that. <laughs> yeah, fair. And two, I think that that fits into their larger sense of they're very proud of St. Louis, but they do feel a certain inferiority complex. Yeah. You think about the way they talk about East Coast women. Yes. And the way that they're like very high class. It's impossible to compete with an East Coast woman for a man, things like that. So there is this real, they feel very provincial. Yes. In their own identity. And so they're really insecure about the idea of going to a place where they think they wouldn't fit in. Yeah. They do feel like they are the cream of the crop of St. Louis, but boy, will that not cut it in New York. Exactly. But so at Lon's party beforehand, we realize that Esther is scheming to arrange her meet cute with John Truitt. Yes. And so she's like talking to Rose beforehand. She's like, I wonder if I'm going to let him kiss me. Like, I wonder if I'm going to kiss him because, you know, this is it. This is the night. We just got to go for it. We're going to meet. And then it's going to be all over. We're going to have it all together. We'll be married before the night is out. Correct. And And Rose Rose gives her some great advice. Rose's response is just, good girls don't let boys kiss them before they're engaged. They don't want the bloom rubbed off. Judy's response to that, I think I have a little too much bloom. Woo! (laughs) She knows what she wants. She knows what she wants. Uh, Esther, go get him, girl. So then she goes down to the party where Lon is already talking to our main man, John Truitt. Right. Esther walks downstairs. You see her nervous at the top of the stairs. Halfway down, she just switches it to, oh, how, like, hi, how are you? Oh, so good to see you. I'm the gracious party host. Oh, I'm having such a good time. What I love is that Lon is clearly in on this too. Oh, yeah. And so when he gets down there, he introduces them. He's like, oh, Esther, like, you should meet this guy, John Truitt. Wink, wink. And Esther's like, I'm sorry, John did you say John Truitt? I'm sorry, I've never, I've never heard, heard this name. Where, where are you from, sir? Have you perhaps come in from the subcontinent? What is your name? John, John, what? Oh no, I haven't been staring at you for weeks. And he's like, well, I, uh, I live next door. I just moved in three weeks ago. And she's like, oh my, no wonder I haven't seen you before. I've literally never seen you before. Incredible. You are nothing to me. <laughs> so they get introduced and they uh, you know, have a nice chat and then the party goes on. They do some songs. They do some dances. They don't really interact at the party. No, but they do at the end of the party because again, Esther is scheming. Yeah. This girl knows what she wants. She basically hides his hat. She does hide his hat. No basic about it. And I love that he picks out the raisins. Yeah. So at the end of the party, everyone's leaving. They're grabbing their hats or their coats or whatever. And John like, I don't have my hat. And so Rose has to call like, oh, yeah, yes, sir. Have you seen John's hat? And she's like, oh, I don't know. And she walks into the kitchen, pulls it out of a box. Yeah. And she gives it to John. And just like you said, he's like, there are raisins in my hat. She's just like, how strange. Oh, Rose is still there watching at this point. Yeah. But then she goes off with a like, come on, Esther, don't. <laughs> Don't do anything Don't scandalous. Don't do anything scandalous tonight. But then Esther and John are saying goodbye and they're shaking hands. They shake. We should have timed it. We should have timed Their it. Their hands are shaking for at least two minutes. Unbroken. Unbroken. And then again, they shake hands later. And he actually goes out the door and she's like, actually, Mr. Truitt, would you mind uh, helping me turn out the lights? I'm terribly afraid of mice. Get it, girl? 
So John comes in. He's like a little bit nervous because he's like, oh, I'm going to be alone in the dark with a girl. Like, you know, this is a pretty dicey situation. And it's, it's worth noting, actually, this scenario is kind of what led us to the creation of Heart of Podness because we had decided we were going to do a podcast and we were tossing around ideas. Yeah. And I remember the time that Fifi Fierce herself had been watching this movie and she and her friends started taking notes on ridiculous dating tips from Meet Me in St. Louis. And one of their ideas was like, get people to turn out the lights with you. And another one involved complimenting their perfume in a very specific way. Yes. Uh, this line I definitely wrote down. So they're walking around turning off the lamps, their gas lamps. So they have to turn the knobs on them. And they're like standing real close. Yeah. As they do it. And John's like, I like your perfume. And Esther's like, thanks. I save it for special occasions. His response is just exactly the kind my grandma uses and you can see esther do this like weird look like what the heck just happened he has so many like ups and downs with his lines throughout the whole movie where he'll say something nice and then say something really weird right after it yeah he's not great at this and then later as he's leaving he's like you know if you don't mind me saying like you don't need any beauty sleep because earlier when rose had tried to get her she was like esther come on up for your beauty sleep but john's like no 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 you got plenty of beauty already, girl. Yeah, that's his only good line in this. That's a pretty good one. Now, before he can go, they have to shake hands a few more times. Right. And then as he leaves, he says, oh, you have such a strong handshake, like a boy. John, Again, she's like, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're so close. She's ready to throw herself at you. Not a good look for my guy. No, it's all self-inflicted wounds here. He's still cute, though. He is still cute. He's a cute kid. I will say at one point in this scene, he says like a few lines from a song and then she starts singing and I was just like, someone who starts singing whole songs with that little prompting could get old. Yeah. It felt very, don't make me sing. Well, I guess if I must. Yeah, because a few of the songs like that are like, they happen because people in the world are singing. Like the title song, which I love. Right. But because it's a musical, there's a lot of songs. So it's definitely like, I'd get to the point where I'd be like, Judy or Esther, dear, not everything I say is cue for you to sing a song. You know, I feel like that is the musical film equivalent of like people who just sing their way through the day. Like, I'm going and doing my laundry. So you put the clothes in the washer, pour in soap, turn on the dial. And close the lid. Now I push that button, start the machine. Soon my clothes will be real clean. And I've got warm clothes cleaned in the wash. This is warm clothes. Not the first time. Oh my gosh. Will has sung the song. I made it up right now. And you should be impressed with the number of rhymes I hit. Um... I don't know if I believe that you wrote this right now, because I feel like you sing this every time you wash your clothes. I made this up right now. If you say so. I'm always listening to podcasts. We know I don't listen to music. Yeah, you do like to sing, though. Yeah. So I'm like Esther, so I feel that kinship. Oh, boy. Anyway, the next day, uh, Esther rides the trolley, and John is late, but eventually he gets on. Yeah. There we go. All right, point three. With her not high starch collar and her not high top shoes and her hair piled nowhere on her head. No, but it is a great scene. I mean, you talk about the colors in this movie. And that that is the showcase for them. They're on this trolley. The trolley conductor looks so annoyed by everything that's happening. Everyone's riding out to see the fair under construction. And the trolley conductor is like, every day a new crowd of people get on to see the fair under construction. And every day they sing this stupid song. And I gotta sit here and drive it backwards and forwards on these tracks. If only my trolley could harvest the souls of the people on board. Oh god, we are moving on to point number three. 
So, okay, point three, we've now transitioned to autumn. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Zing, zing, zing went my heart strings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. And it's Halloween. Yes. All Hallows' Eve. I don't understand the Halloween traditions in this movie. They're awesome. Anyway, they're great. This section is mostly about Tootie, who, as we've said, is a demon incarnate. She's the kid from Hereditary. In this scene, she attempts murder and frames John Truitt for beating her up. And she is five. Let's walk through Tootie's night. So step one... She goes with Agnes, who's her slightly older sister. Agnes is maybe like 10. Yeah, so I think it's like Alonso's probably like 20, 18, 17. Big gap, 10, 5. 10, 5, yeah. So 2D tags along with Agnes, and like Agnes and the other like 5th grade, 6th grade age kids are having a bonfire. There there is a wagon wheel in there. I think these kids took... Is it the wagon wheel that they then used to make the table in When Harry Met Sally? I think some... These kids... Took someone's perfectly working wagon <laughs> and, are and setting it ablaze. broke it apart and are now setting it on fire. I believe that. They also have like full chairs that they're throwing on the fire. Yeah, these kids are... They're looters. And this is like... seems to happen every year. Yeah. So they have their looting. They have to go and they're all going to be targeted by a ghoul tonight. And in order to get the ghoul off, you, you have to kill someone. Which entails throwing flour in their face and yelling, I hate you. Right. And Tootie, who refuses to be sent away, they're like, Tootie, you can't do this. You're too young. There's no way you'll survive this night. Tootie refuses, and she actually takes on one of the scariest houses, and she goes up there. And I like this part because the camera's shot really low, so it makes the houses look really big and scary. Right. Like, it's Tootie's perspective. Yeah. And she goes up, and she knocks on the door, and it's like little Tootie, who has the cutest Halloween costume, and that she looks like some weird... She's supposed to be like a undead hobo. Yeah. She has, like, the fake nose and glasses with a weird mustache coming out of it. Yeah, and a weird floppy hat. Yeah. And she knocks on the door, and it's, like, clearly petrified. But then the old dude opens the door, and his bulldog is at his ankles. And they stare at each other for a second. And this, he's supposed to be the scariest man on the block. Everyone else, all the older kids, are too terrified to go up to this house. But in actuality, he's basically the old man from Home Alone, where he seems spooky, but is fine. Yeah. And so she throws the flower at him and shouts, I hate you! And then he just... Wipes it off his face and goes back inside. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be a Halloween tradition, so he was probably expecting it. Right. So she goes back. She's a hero for that. And then she's like, what's next? I'm going to derail the trolley. And so she takes an old dress and, like, stuffs it with some crap, throws it on the trolley tracks in front of the trolley so that people will freak out and think someone's getting run over. Yeah, and then the trolley driver will stop so suddenly it derails. and. People will die. So she's doing this. John Truitt sees this happening and is like, holy crap. Yeah. For starters, let's get Tootie out of here. Right. Because he's looking out for her. So he pulls her out of the way. And then Tootie sort of gets a little bit battered during this whole process of this crazy idea. And when she goes home, because she's trying to cover for herself for having tried to kill people by derailing the trolley, she says that John Truitt beat her up. And somehow Esther believes this. Well, again, it's the 29 crash. Esther is so high strung. Like, she's a teenager who, like, everything has really high stakes. Her hormones are raging. Everything is so important that she's like, oh my gosh, this John Truitt, that man that I met at Lon's party and had never heard of before, I had no concept of his existence, and I trusted the man who turned out the lights with me because I'm afraid of mice. 
that man beats small children just for trying to derail trolleys. Oh, I did mean to say with turning off the lights, because everything's gas, it takes a little while. So there's a lot of steamy moments, Oh, that's which true. I appreciate. Yeah. But this brings us to maybe the greatest fight scene on television. So Esther runs over to John's house and starts just, he's on the porch. He's like, oh, hi, Esther. How's it going? And she starts punching him. And then she switches to a tactic I've never seen where she kind of just uses the sides of her arms as like and clubs. swings at him like baseball bats. It's like um, Dr. Bong, the guy who fought Howard the Duck. Who just had a bell clapper for an arm? That's basically what he's doing, just like swinging bell clappers. And she manages to land some real damage. Yeah, and he's trying to hold her at bay to like yeah. help himself, and she bites his wrist. And then she just runs away without explaining why this is happening. Yeah, I love imagining this from John's perspective, where he's like, "Oh, hey, girl, that I'm like into, and we've been flirting with. We rode the trial together. Oh my gosh, you're hitting me. You bit me, and then gone. And he's just like out relaxing on his hammock. Right. So then, before long, Tootie lets the truth slip. Yeah, of what actually happened. Well, because Agnes comes home and it's like, oh my gosh, did you see what happened? It was amazing. And then Tootie's like, "Ah, yeah, we almost derailed the trolley. Esther is naturally upset. Yeah, and Tootie has been like tucked into Esther's bed. She wants to sleep in Esther's room tonight. She has Esther's nightgown on, eating ice cream. And Esther is really upset. Esther's pissed. She's like, you can't wear my nightgown anymore, Tootie, you horrid girl. So Esther has to go back and apologize to John. And John is like, oh, do you want to bite me again? Like, what's going on here? And then she apologizes. He forgives her and says, it's like football practice, but it's better with a girl. Ayo. He also says, I think this is kind of nice. If you're not busy tomorrow night, could you beat me up again? Yeah, he's really sweet. He is. John's a nice... so milquetoast. He's a nice kid. That's it. Yeah. And then he actually, as she's going, he asks her to help him turn out the lights. Says he's afraid of mice. She says no, but then he does kiss her. The old grab and stab. Thank you, Daniel Ortberg, for giving us that amazing phrase. What man. Oh, my God. And so he does the grab and stab, grabs, forcefully kisses, and then she leaves. And she's over cloud nine. She's wandering around like she's just so dazed by this kiss. Yeah. She can't focus on anything. She's not listening to people. She goes back in the house, and her siblings start making fun of her. Like, ha, Esther's in love with John. Esther's in love with John. Oh, this is the night that Rose gets the ride home from the colonel. Oh, yeah. The shortest lived 0.5 points on the love story there. What's then? This takes us to point number four, Christmas Eve. There's going to be a big dance. Yes, the annual Christmas Eve dance. Right. And Rose and Lon are going to be going together because the people that they're into are going with each other. One of my favorite lines in this scene is she's just like, because uh, Kate is the one that sets that up because both of them got dumped like the day before. And so Kate is just like, you guys will just go together. I'm Kate and I'm telling everyone what to do all the time because I'm the best and smartest. She's great. Although in the stage version of this, there was a stage version that premiered in 1989. Yeah. She has this really weird song that she sings to both Rose and Esther called The Luck of the Irish, where uh, it's basically just like, be aggressively Irish at men and that'll get them to fall in line and do what you want. Oh, God. That doesn't sound problematic at all yeah uh so esther's encouraging this because she wants them to come and the way she phrases it is oh i'd go to the dance with lon if i didn't have a date which i do 
Esther's a saucy little girl. She's savage. Yeah. So she is going to be going with John, except then John comes over looking mortified. Right after Esther has put a ton of effort into getting a corset put on her for the first time. Yeah. And John says he had been at basketball practice and it ran late and his suit was at the tailor's. And now the tailor's locked up and he can't get it. Yeah. So he's not going to be able to go to the dance because he can't dress for it. Right. Because it's a black tie event. Right. She's really upset. He's like, you know, we could do something else if you want to. And she's like, no, I, I don't want to do anything else. I, I guess just want to sit in my room and cry. And also she says, I guess I'll just pack. Because the big news that came on Halloween was that Esther's dad had received a promotion. He was going to be heading up the new New York office for his law firm. And so they were going to be moving to New York at the end of the year. And they're all horribly upset because they don't want to miss the fair. They also don't want to leave they their home. They love St. Louis. And but now at Christmas Eve, we're talking, they're going to be leaving in a week. Right. So this would be one of the last times that Esther and John were able to do something like this in right. St. Louis. And he says, oh, you must hate me. And she says, I don't hate you. I just, I just hate, hate basketball. basketball. Hashtag no baskets. Baskets? Hashtag no baskets. So this is one of the most contrived fights yeah. I've ever seen in a movie. But so Esther is like, well, I'm just going to stay home and be grumpy. And Rose, to her credit, insists that she goes. Rose is like, it'll be good for you to go. Like, all three of us will go together. Yeah. And Esther's like, I wouldn't be caught dead at a dance with my brother. And Rose is just like, what the f***? You told me that you would do this if you didn't have a date. It is really hypocrite. funny. And it again, feels very adolescent in a real way. Oh, for sure. So then, Ro- what's really nice is that then her granddad comes yes. in and he's like, your father should sue the man who built this house for him because these walls are very thin and I can hear you crying. Yeah. So Rose has gone off to get their mother to force Esther to go to, Esther the, dance. To go to the dance. But grandpa comes in, explains how Esther looks just like her grandmother who we met at a Christmas Eve dance and how his old suit is pretty nice and hasn't been out in about in a while so then he goes with her to the dance it's very sweet and it's nice that they dance uh rose and lon manage to mix and match with the people they actually want to be with and so they're paired off and happy right and then esther and rose had been uh, inspiring <laughs> hatching a plot so what it is is lon's ex-girlfriend essentially and rose's ex-boyfriend who didn't propose over the phone went together to the dance so Esther and Rose are scheming. They make a dance card with all the worst boys at the dance to give to whatever her face is. But then when everyone does a switcheroo, Esther's stuck with all the worst dance partners. But then Granddad cuts in and he dances with her and they're doing a nice dance. They dance off into an area where they're alone and they dance behind this enormous Christmas tree. And when the they great come- Christmas tree switcheroo! And when they come back around the other side, Esther is now dancing with John. It's really cute. It's great. So they dance and then cut to Esther is crying outside under a tree wearing a diamond hairnet. Yeah. Which I love. It looks great. And Lon says, I would never have said it if I knew it would make you cry. And then it turns out he'd proposed, which is... A normal reaction on her part because it is a mixture of like happiness but also sadness because it means either leaving her fiance slash husband or her family. It's and, a lot of complicated emotions. Yeah. And so his response is not like, we'll work it through. It was just like, oh, I should never have asked you this because you're crying. I don't think he seriously meant that. I, I know. Think, like, he also was probably really nervous about this. Right. Because the stakes are high for him with her leaving too. But she did say yes. Right. And they are engaged. Yeah. 
And so that's really exciting for them. They are very young, but it's also period appropriate. Yes, they haven't really worked out a plan yet. No, they just know that they want to be together. And so they go home and Esther comforts 2D for a bit, sings Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, basically being like, we're going to have a nice Christmas here. We're going to be leaving our home and it's going to be sad, but it'll be okay. It's such a beautiful scene. It's an awesome performance. It's just Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien looking out a window together as she sings a beautiful Christmas song. Um, Fun fact about Tootie's meltdown that night. Yeah. Um, There was kind of a competition on the MGM lot among some of the kids, the child actors especially, about crying. And so one of the ways that Margaret O'Brien's mom would get her to cry would be like, oh, you know, I've been hearing some stories that one of those other girls is a better crier than you. So like, I guess I'm seeing that right now. You can't make yourself cry. Like, that must be it. And so then to prove her wrong, like, that was the way to incentivize Margaret O'Brien doing her crying. Her mom sounds like a full stage mom. Yes, she very much is. Oh, God. But then also... Also that night, the family is all hanging out downstairs because the dad called them down, Alonzo Sr., who's a character I like a lot. Yes. Alonzo Sr. calls them all down and he's like, you know what? Very Mr. Banks vibe. It's very Mr. Banks. Yeah. He calls them all down and he's like, actually, you know what? We're not going to leave. This is our home. I'm going to tell the company we're staying here. And as he's doing this, Warren Sheffield bursts into the house and is like, Rose, I love you. We're getting married. Bye. (laughs) And then leaves. That's it. It's terrific. And Alonzo is just like, I don't really know what that was, but congratulations, Rose. Yeah. He was like, who is that man? Also, congratulations. Yeah. It's great. So they're going to stay. And that leads us to our final point, which is in the Spring. They go to the fair. They, they go to the fair. They it's a nice little epilogue, Louis. essentially. They meet at the fair. Yeah. Don't tell them the lights are shining anyplace but there. They are shining there. They do not dance the Tootsie Wootsie. Or the Hoochie Coochie. No, they didn't dance the Hootsie Coochie, but they are each other's Tootsie Wootsies. There we go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good and movie. They just go to the fair. It's happy. Everyone's together. And yeah, they're, they're all, all like, clearly still together. It's great. We love St. Louis. Yay. All right. So, uh, what did you think of the relationships in this movie? I think it's believable. I do too. They're so cute. They're really both very cute. They're both like 17, 18 and live next door in 1904. That sounds like a recipe for marriage. Yeah, it does. Um, Where would you rate it then on our 10 point scale? I don't know. Like a nine? Yeah. I think she flies off the handle pretty quickly yeah. on Halloween. Yeah, but they are, as we said, they're teenagers they're with raging hormones. So yeah, let's, it's believable. You know it's our last episode. Let's just do it. Let's call it a nine. Let's call it nine. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as Iron Man. It's Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that Esther and John are dateable? I think they will be in a few years. They're not there yet. I think Esther needs a bit of time to cool off. Esther plus five? um, Yeah. Yes. John, he's like a little boring. He's a cute guy. He could use some edge, but he's very cute. Yeah. Maybe if we saw him like on the football field and we saw him a little more rugged, yeah, we'd be into it. If you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, who would it be? You can't date Tootie because she's a child. Uh, Kate, obviously. Oh, great choice. She can make great ketchup. Oh my gosh, we didn't talk about that. The most compelling plotline in this. I was going to offer you a bowl of ketchup when we started. <laughs> oh God. For the first like committing to my prop comedy on this show. For like the first 10 minutes of this movie, almost every character is introduced by giving an opinion on Kate's ketchup. Yeah, it's hilarious. As she's making like a giant pot of ketchup. Yeah, and bottling it. And so like Mary Astor, the mom, Anna, tastes it. It's like, it's just perfect. Kate says, too sweet and pours in some vinegar. Lon comes home, tastes it and says, too sour. And I think Grandpa and Agnes both taste it too. It's pretty funny. It's great. My favorite plot line. Anyway, they eat 
bowls of ketchup as they they're like, like starting course. If you please try that for us, tweet at us, hashtag catch it up. Tell us how it is just eating a bowl of ketchup. Honestly, sometimes it makes sense that we're getting canceled with puns like that. Our social media resonance has been what's kept us alive this far. It was all those hashtags that you did okay on identifying. <laughs> hashtag poop talk. Hashtag catch it up. The conclusion to this great quest for the perfect ketchup is satisfying because Alonzo Sr. tastes it and says, This is great ketchup, Kate. Yeah. Um. As far as who I would date... I feel like I'd probably say either Rose, who I like a lot. She's, like, Fair. very put together, but, like, has kind of a bite. Yeah. She's, like, secretly sassy. She's fun. Yeah, she's cool. So I think that's probably my answer. Like I said, I do like Alonzo a lot. Yes. They're all great. Yeah, everybody's great. There are no, like, characters from where... Even the mean old man actually seems nice. Yeah. He's like the dude from Home Alone. He'll save 2D from the Wet Bandits. Right. Um, I think that does it. Okay, well, uh, show's been a heck of a ride. Thanks for listening. I guess if we're wrapping things up, we should bring hashtag PD summaries to an end as well. Thank goodness it lined up. Yeah, this actually this was not planned. Perfect. Yeah, no, it was not. Our quest to find out if Hollywood romance made any sense will also end with Princess Mia's high school story. As a reminder, in last week's installment, Princess Mia, Michael was in Japan working on his robot arm while Mia was still being upset about things. He told her that for now they just need to be friends, and so she kind of starts dating JP instead. JP, of course, is the guy who does not like corn in his chili. Also, at this point, Mia, in a stunning reversal, is giving a speech and reveals that ages ago, Princess Amelie of Genovia had written a thing making Genovia a constitutional monarchy as opposed to the absolute monarchy that it apparently has been all this time. And we didn't know because Rachel didn't mention it until now. So Mia reveals this and Grandmare is furious because she doesn't want to give up her absolute power. But nonetheless, it takes over. And yeah, that was stunning. That was a real turn. So today, of course, we're doing the final book in the series, Forever Princess. This book is great, says Rachel R., our listener and dutiful recorder of the words of Meg Cabot. It's basically written to fulfill every teenage girl's romance fantasy, but it's also a lot. It jumps ahead to the end of senior year when Mia finds out she's been accepted to every college she applied to. None of her friends got into their top choice, although they all got into very good places. So she lies and says she didn't get into anywhere and is going to the University of Genovia, a well-known party school for rich parents to send their entitled kids to. JP says he'll go with her so that they can stay together because they are still dating. But the thing is, Mia does not have very strong feelings for JP, which to me, Will, feels like a real reflection of the whole any situation when she was dating her lab partner. <laughs> Specifically, JP's neck does not smell as good as Michael's, and yet they keep dating and getting photographed by the paparazzi. Also, Lily isn't speaking to Mia, but she and Kenny are in a very serious high school relationship. For her senior project, Mia wrote a 300-word historical romance novel set in the 13th century. Side note, they released that romance novel written by Mia, obviously Meg Cabot, uh, and Rachel says, I obviously bought it and read it. It wasn't good. I'm not a huge fan of romance novels, so maybe it was better than I think, but I was unimpressed. But Mia lied to all of her friends, said it was about the history of Genova and olive oil pressing. Uh, in the books, Genovia's main export is olives, not pears. Big improvement on the movie's part, pears are hilarious. Mia's dad is now running for president of Genovia, because it's constitutional now, and her cousin Renee is running against him. Her dad is really stressed out about the campaign. Also, it's Mia's 18th birthday, and Grandmare is playing a huge party. And then, Michael comes back with his robot arm. Lana insists that Mia cover his robot arm press conference for the school paper, and he's really happy to see her and invites her to get coffee. She tells him about the olive oil project, and he asks to read it, and she's like, nah, it's really boring. And he's like, no, I want to read it. And then she's like, actually, it's a romance novel, and he still wants to read it, and she sends him to him. And they get pretty flirty, and when they hug, she smells his neck, which, remember, smells better than JP's neck. And that makes her realize that she's still in love with him. Whoops! 
Mia also has been asked by her grandmother to buy Genovia a cardio arm. Mia asks, and Michael gives Genovia one as a gift. She says she'll buy him lunch as a thank you. Next up, Mia's birthday party. It's on a boat. Uh, there are too many people, so the boat can't legally sail, so they just hang out on the boat. Michael and Lily get invited as a thank you to the cardio arm, and at the birthday party, JP asks Mia to prom basically with an engagement ring, and Mia gets really flustered and kind of rejects him, but not totally. It's very awkward. As the not proposal is happening, Mia sees Michael leaving and is very upset. Then, Mia starts admitting to all of her other friends that she wrote a romance novel. Tina, who is the daughter of an oil sheik, loves it. JP only reads like the first two paragraphs, and then calls his dad's friend who's a publisher, and they agree to publish it as long as it can be under Mia's full royal name, which she doesn't want because she wants people to buy it because they want to read the book itself. Meanwhile, JP, for his senior project, has written a play that's basically based on his relationship from Mia, but from his perspective, so Michael is a villain. It's very awkward. Mia hates it, but he kind of ignores that and says it's potentially going to Broadway because his dad has connections. His dad is clearly Lonnie Price from Muppets Take Manhattan, because that's the only way something this ridiculous would go to Broadway. The morning of the day that Mia's gonna have lunch with Michael, she gets a call from a publisher who wants to publish the book before knowing that she's a princess. She is elated. She goes to lunch with Michael and tells him it's getting published. He now has read the whole thing and thought it was hot, and they celebrate. He then insists they go on a carriage ride through Central Park. Real Christmas kiss move. It's all coming together. <laughs> And during that, they start hardcore making out. When they reach their destination, he starts to tell her that he still loves her, but she puts her hand over his mouth and won't let him speak. She goes to her last therapy session with the cowboy psychologist, who I had forgotten about, and they read together a text message from Michael that basically says, I love you, and I know you love me, and I'll wait as long as it takes. And the next night is prom! Mia finds out that JP only dated Lily to get close to Mia, and Lily and JP had slept together, but JP lied and told Mia he was a virgin. And we know how Mia feels about lying about being a virgin. Lily and Mia reconcile at prom. Mia gets voted prom queen, which feels unnecessary. She's already a monarch, am I right? And then Mia breaks up with JP by the elevators to the rooms and gets the Genovian lawyers to put a cease and desist on his play. Interesting. Michael then shows up at prom because Lily called him and told him to, and he and Mia go back to his apartment and sleep with each other. Climax of the series. The sex was always coming. Excuse me. The it was always coming. The next day is graduation, the day after prom, where Mia finds out that her dad won the election. She announces to everyone that she's going to Sarah Lawrence, and it's great. End of series. And with that, our show is over, I guess. Just like Mia's virginity. It's been a ride. I hate the treatment of sex in that series. It's pretty horrific. It's really bad. Guys, we've really enjoyed doing this show. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I'm we sorry love that you. we can't keep doing it. Um, But yeah, this is... Hang on. While we were recording, I wasn't watching my phone since that was apparently an issue for you. But I got another message. I mean, we got nothing to lose. Square Apron's not sponsoring us anymore. Yeah, why not play it now? Yeah, we'll just play it on the air. So, like, take that, Square Apron. Everyone's going to know how terrible you are. We don't care what you think. You guys are the worst. We're going to play your stupid messages over the internet. Boom. Take that. Tony A. Anthony. Hey, Mark, Will, I'm calling again from Square Apron. This is still Tony A. Anthony, still Vice President of Market and Advertising for General Interest Podcasting and Television and Film. Listen, wanted to follow up on my previous call. Gotta say... Talked it over with boys. We decided. Love the show, but name needs a change. Square Apron only markets with the best. With his hotter partners anyway. But you put some great work together. We hate to see it end like this. Maybe you don't live or die by the name. Maybe you ah, replace it. I don't know. Think it over. Take your time. But get back to me soon. I'm looking out for you here. I want you to know. You got friends here at Square Apron. Specifically, Tony A. Anthony. And someday. And that day may never come. I will call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, best wishes, love the show, hope it works out. Wow.
Just kidding there, bud. All those things Will said. Such a joke. Ha ha ha. So, I guess we're gonna keep going. Yeah. So, what? Tony Tony says that we gotta change the name? Yeah. What should we, uh, what should we do? I mean, what's important to us? Um, Howard the Duck, obviously. We could be just be Duck Talk. Nope. I think that would work really well. That's Hard no. Okay. Ixnay um, on the uh, day octay. It's the sound, it's the feeling is not a bad name for a show. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It has nothing to do with anything because it's made up just like Heart of Podness. <laughs> it's even worse. Um, we could be the nice skin show. You know what we love? We could be Poop Talk. I'm sure that exists. I feel like that must already exist. If there is a poop talk show, tweet it at us. Hashtag poop talk. Hashtag poop talk talk. Because we're talking about poop talk. <laughs> I feel like that only leaves one thing. Is it hashtag count macho? No. If there's one thing that we love the most here at Heart of Podness, it's the love. Oh, yeah. We love the love. Starting next week, we will have a new name for a new year and beyond. And uh, Tony A. Anthony and Square Apron will still be with us. Thank I assume God. that that's good with you, Tony. Um, this name makes a little more sense, right? Yeah. We love the love. A Hollywood romance podcast. Yeah. So from next week on, we will be a new name, same show. We and love we'll be, the love. And we'll be looking at a true phenomenon on the 10th anniversary of its release, the 2018 vampire romance sensation Twilight. Hashtag Twilight at 10. Hashtag Twilight at 10. The hashtags live on, Mark. I told you. Should I be worried about Tony A. Anthony saying one day he's going to call on us for a favor? Probably not. It sounded kind of ominous. Doesn't feel like a loose thread at all. I mean, we'll see if that ever comes up again. <laughs> I'm wagering no. I think the odds are high. We'll see. Um, um all right, so yeah, of course. Synchronized ums, we're so cute. <laughs> so starting next Monday, all of our usernames will shift over to the new name. For now, you can still follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Heart of Podness. You can email us questions or movie suggestions at heartofpodness at gmail.com. Like I said, those names are gonna shift. The same pages will still be in place. If you're subscribing, you'll still be subscribed to our feed. It'll just have a new name. And as always, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the show because it helps other people find us. And going into year two, now is a great time to join the show. Full show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Oh, best piece of dating advice. I mean, to go with the most obvious piece, don't let a boy kiss you until you're engaged. Good one. I was just going to say, ask people to turn out the lights with you. But make sure that they have to reach around you to do it so that your bodies come close enough for him to smell your perfume. Right. We don't have gas lamps that need those long sticks anymore. So you just got to like stand awkwardly near light switches. Yeah. Make sure you position yourself right in front of it so they have to reach around you. That's the way to go. The old uh, light switch reach around. (laughs) That sounds so gross. It's just turning out the lights. Uh. Then it can be like, your light switch looks like my grandmother's. (laughs) And you'll be like, yeah, all light switches look the same. Except, like, the long, flat ones, and then the little, like, nubby ones. Yeah, and then in our bathroom, we have the horizontal switch. Oh, true. Okay, so I guess light switches come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. You can't limit them to one style. That's true. And whatever light switch works best for you is the one you should use in your home. Slash whichever one the builder puts in your apartment building. Tomato, tomato. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, until year two, I am a ginger. And I'm still gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 Bye.